welcome to episode 247 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 11th of September 2023. I'm Joe, and with me are Fadim. Ahoy hoy. Graham. Hello. And Will. Good evening. Let's get straight on with our discoveries then. Will, what is iSort? iSort is a handy little Python script that lets you sort all of your imports and it does grouping and it puts them all at the top of the script where they should be. So you can just go through willy-nilly bashing in all your imports. You don't have to import multiple things from one library on the same line if you want to just disperse them through your code. Run iSort and it just puts them all at the top, neatly grouped together. That's all it does. I quite like that. Is this going to make you less bad at Python, Fanny? No, no, there's nothing that could save that, to be quite <laughs> honest. But yeah, see, I got laughed at but at a job once where I go, oh, look, you've sorted your fucking imports alphabetically. I was like, well, yeah, because that's actually a Python pip or whatever. And mm. uh, this is quite nice because someone can be quite a mess and trying to follow the rules of whether it's ahead of one or, or behind the other. That's That's quite cool. I like it. Simple. Does its job. It does, because sometimes when the rare times that I'm doing this, you add modules and then you move on and then you do something else and then you add another module and you often wonder whether you've already added the module that you need to then <laughs> add. or And so having it all in alphabetical order is great. Fadeb, you say your Python isn't so good. I was wondering if you've ever tried uh, GitHub Copilot. No. <laughs> it's not that bad, Graham. I don't need to stoop to those filthy gutter levels. Okay, I'm sorry. Mm. That was low. Not quite desperation stakes just yet. <laughs> well, I didn't need to import very many copyrighted works into my projects. No. <laughs> All right. Firefox search hints. This one comes courtesy of friend of the show, Roger Light who pinged it to me this just this morning on Telegram, and it's incredibly useful. If you are looking for a tab that's already open or a page in your bookmarks, Firefox will let you search those particular things straight in the URL hotbar or omnibar or whatever it's called in Firefox. If you prefix your search with uh, the hat thing on number six, it will search through your browsing history. If you prefix your search with an asterisk, it will search your bookmarks. If you prefix it with a percent sign, it will search your open tabs. And there's quite a few of these little tips and uh, tricks that you could do with Firefox that I simply didn't know existed. If you're anything like me, you have far too many tabs open. They're all vitally important. You can't possibly close them, but nor can you actually use them in a meaningful manner. This is a really handy way of finding the thing that you're looking for, if you can remember what it's called without having to scroll through hundreds and hundreds of tabs. So really straightforward, really nice usability feature and something that I've never seen before. I don't know how I missed it, but it's incredibly useful. This is how you found that thing last episode where you had to search back through your open tabs then. I could have done that, but I didn't because I just knew <laughs> that it was in there. <laughs> ah, so you just clicked around until you found it. Well, you should have done this. I should have done. I could have saved myself seconds. Mm. If I were to use one of these... Every time I was looking for something in an open tab, I'd probably save, I don't know, five minutes a day or something, and that will soon add up. See, the thing is, right, Twitter is useless at finding stuff. I know I've watched a video on Twitter, and I know what it's about roughly, and I can't find it. And I literally have to go into the Firefox history 
and look through each tab that has Twitter and click through because it's so shite at mm. like discovering stuff. This is genius. Why is this not advertised? Why are they going on with all their shite they usually do rather than make it like decent, like A4 sheet Firefox cheat sheet? It'd be fantastic. This is brilliant. Honestly, this has actually made Phelan's amazing cheat sheet A4 page. Wow. That's how big a deal it is. Graham, headset control. I work from home. I have quite a few meetings. And for years and years and years, the headphones and microphone I've been using for all of these meetings were the headphones that came free with the original Ubuntu phone. (laughs) (laughs) Top quality, then. Yeah, top quality. And also a cable length that was designed for a phone in your pocket. So a couple of feet. So I, I, I'm always like literally shackled to my work. <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of us, I experimented with Bluetooth headphones because I have them lying around. And maybe not you, Phelan. <laughs> but they never worked, especially the microphone. You can get the audio working. But also the big problem with Bluetooth, even when you do get them working, is there's a delay. And that's fine if it's one way and you're listening to music or watching a film. But if you're in a two-way conversation with someone, the delay is off-putting, even if it's just half a second. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. (laughs) I've only ever used them for listening to audio. Yeah, small latency in Bluetooth is, you know, a couple of hundred milliseconds, I think. So, you know, a fifth of a second, which is enough, yeah, with conversation. And it could be more. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine who was, I was out and about and he was driving. He was driving in LA. I was walking around in London and the latency over two times Bluetooth and LTE and all the rest of it, it was so bad that we had to just say our point and then literally say over. So that the next person could start talking. It actually worked really well. But, uh, Brilliant. I wish I was there on the street looking at you do that. Over. <laughs> yeah. So, I've been aware for some time that, especially in gaming, because gamers need to talk and listen to their gaming music, there are a load of headsets designed for gaming that use a proprietary USB dongle to basically send the audio over over 2.4 gigahertz radio and the microphone back, effectively latency-free. The audio driver is a standard audio driver running off the dongle, running onto the dongle, so it appears as a standard headset. There's no Bluetooth or anything. It just, and then the dongle talks to the wireless headphone element. There's quite a few of these made by Corsair, Logitech, um, and Steel Series. And I bought a Steel Series headset that's completely wireless and has one of these dongles. Now, because the dongle is usually class compliant for an audio microphone device they nearly all work with linux but as you can expect especially with gaming there's a load of proprietary options and they're all kind of unique to each individual set of headphones the most important one and we almost covered this last episode is what they call side tone which is being able to hear the microphone in your ears without going through kind of a software loopback um, they all provide this option as a direct kind of feedback inside the headphones themselves, but it's an option that you turn on usually from the Windows control panel. Right, headset control is a command line utility that for many, many headsets provides access to these secret proprietary features, lets you turn on the side tone, lets you adjust the volume, lets you adjust the balance between your own microphone and the game or the meeting that you're in, and also often lets you set up extra features like multicolored LEDs or, most importantly, equalizer presets. 
uh, lets you change the equalization if your headphones offers those that kind of support. It's incredibly useful, and I used it to choose which headset to buy because I wanted one with good Linux support, and it's totally unofficial and independent of the manufacturers and any standard, but it's such a useful tool if you want to kind of upgrade your meeting headset for Linux. This reminds me of... I think there's some Samsung thing or whatever that needed something like this. Once again, mm. it's just a bunch of nerds have found a way to control things that they shouldn't be controlling in operating systems that they shouldn't be able to control it in. And it's just down to the hard work of people out there and they make it all open source for everyone else to benefit from. It's brilliant. It really is brilliant. And I haven't uh, installed the drivers on Windows and the, and the control panel on Windows, but I can well imagine what it looks like, the kind of ads that it has mm. and, and the amount of CPU it takes in the background while it insists on running in your panel. And this is just a command. You run it once. It instantly does what you ask it, and, and it's brilliant. This is so useful. For years, I had the opposite of this, which was a pair of noise-cancelling headphones that I had to use during meetings. And so... I would shout louder and louder so I could hear myself, and the active noise cancelling would do the opposite. And it was infuriating. And in the end, I bought an entirely new pair of headphones that have a kind of built-in side tone. It's called pass-through mode or something like that. But it's got a, a microphone in the back of the headphones, and it just dribbles that through a little bit into your ear, so you've got a rough idea of what's going on around you. But I don't like it. It's kind of weird. And I would much prefer a proper side tone with really low latency. So yeah, I think when I when these die, I think I will definitely get something that is supported by this. Very, very useful. It's nice to see us rediscover all these things that were invented back like Alexander Graham Bell style mm. in the uh, <laughs> early 19th century. And that that's quite cool because um I have a noise cancelling pair of Sony headphones that are, are Bluetooth, but I only use them for music because they cancel out literally too much of my own voice, so you end up shouting, I find. And it's, it's exactly that feature that is this. For recording this show, I use like these uh, H600 Logitech ones, and they've got their own dongle, all right. But it's literally because they are like on-ear earphones. So they don't like cancel out enough of the sound around me, so I know what I'm saying. It's weird. It's very surreal to have that sort of chopped off of your own voice thing, even though you know you are creating it, you can't hear it properly. It's so bizarre. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Factor. With the busy fall season already in swing, you might be looking for wholesome, convenient meals for jam-packed days. Factor can help you fuel up fast with chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle. Too busy this fall to cook but want to make sure you're eating well? With Factor, skip the extra trip to the grocery store and the chopping, prepping and cleaning up too, while still getting the flavour and nutritional quality you need. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are ready in just two minutes, so all you have to do is heat them up and enjoy. Level up with Gourmet Plus options, prepared to perfection by chefs and ready to eat in record time. Treat yourself to upscale meals with premium ingredients like broccolini, leeks, truffle butter and asparagus. My two and a half admins co-host Jim tried Factor and said the meals were quick and easy to prepare and liked that there was plenty of variety. So support the show and go to factormeals.com slash latenightlinux50 and use code latenightlinux50 to get 50% off. That's code latenightlinux50 at factormeals.com slash latenightlinux50 to get 50% off. Well, I finally checked out Asahi Fedora Remix. 
And previously, the officially supported Asahi was based on Arch with Plasma Desktop, which was fine, but no one really wants to use Arch. I mean, really, people will tell you they do, but they don't really want to use it, do they? Graham does. Yeah, I think he doesn't really want to use it. He just does it to be flash or something. But Fedora is a nice, sensible distro, like Ubuntu. I put it in that same category. I know less about it, but it's still a nice, sensible distro. And... um it works really well, actually. The installation is easy. I mean, it's once again curling and piping to SH or whatever, but that's kind of to be expected on a Mac. But once it's all installed, which is, it takes a little while and takes a few reboots and pressing keys and whatever, but it's just Fedora. And during the installation process, you get a choice between Plasma, GNOME, or just Headless. So I thought, well hmm, I don't really like GNOME very much, so I should probably go with Plasma, but then it'll troll Phelan if I go with GNOME, so I went with that. (laughs) Of course it is. And actually, it was fucking brilliant. It was Mm, really, really good. Good. The scaling was all perfect. Good for you. Finally, finally, and I don't know if this is just because I haven't checked out Asahi, I haven't booted into that Arch-based one for ages, but finally, brightness works screen brightness so you can go in increments it used to be just on or off and it would just be whatever you had last set it in macOS. whereas now you've got complete control over that and wi-fi works much more consistently than it did before which is excellent bluetooth is like officially supported now bluetooth audio but it was really choppy in gnome so i installed xfce and that the scaling was just tiny because it's actually a very high resolution screen the m1 macbook air and uh, it was borderline unusable with my ancient eyes. But Bluetooth worked absolutely perfectly, so I don't know what is going on there. I don't know why it worked in XFC, but not GNOME. But it's just really nice to see a sort of... I mean, okay, all the Arch people have already written their emails in, but it's nice to see a sort of average distro Fedora on there and not have to deal with the Arch bullshit and updates and all the rest of it. So... I'd prefer an Ubuntu-based one, obviously, but I'll definitely settle for Fedora. And it's not a first-class experience, obviously, compared to macOS. But when macOS is no longer supported in a few years, I could definitely see myself using this full-time. See, Hector Martin uses KDE, so you really should have actually taken that, and then it would have been a first-class experience. Just saying. Well, maybe. I will give that a go at some point. But the GNOME experience was good i mean it's obviously gnome and all the issues that i have with that but it did seem to work perfectly well apart from that bluetooth audio weirdness and there's no speaker audio i don't know if that will ever get fixed i don't know if that is just a proprietary apple bullshit thing maybe they'll crack that at some point but i think i can cope with bluetooth audio if it's actually going to work properly like it does in xfce failing you've got two unrelated things with the same name Abort, retry, fail. The first one is pretty cool. It's a project that if you have some spare cash, send it this way because this is pretty cool. It's called the Bloop Museum. And their idea is that they try to preserve data that is on various data formats for everything. And they have this really cool story of them trying to get data off of a disc. It's a floppy disc, five and a quarter inch. And they're not sure even where it came from and what is on it. And it turns out it's for a legal case and they, you know, they have various machines that they can try it in on. And they're, you know, they're talking about that they noticed that it has like digital RX 50K written on it sort of thing. And oh, is it a Unix machine? Who knows? And then 
as they say, they have an example of a photo of an Apple IIe game that is Wonderland Dog Racing, which is on on one of those exact discs, and it's clearly not a digital machine. And what they do is they even show you how the fact that they listen to the audio file that comes off as a WAV file, and the guy is able to say, here, if you listen at this bit here, you'll hear there's a dinge in the disc. And it's like, what? And it's like, they're listening to the audio file. It's like, it sounds if you played a uh, digital CD inside a CD player and you get that whole, all that horrible stuff. It's so cool. And they're like extracting this thing. And then what it turns out to be is one of the, I think in the States, they call them a court reporter. We call them, oh, what do we call them over here? I've forgotten. A stenography machine. Stenography machine. Thank you. Yes. So it's a stenographer and they're literally looking for the case recording from this machine that the person has used and it used this floppy disk and they just go through the whole way of getting the data back, retrieving it. And it turns out they actually found the stenographer and they worked through the file and yeah, I ended up getting the guy out of jail because <laughs> he was in incarcerated incorrectly based on rubbish and yeah. it's just amazing like it is really like you think oh i've got a box of floppy disks they're not important well these people are doing important stuff with real floppy disks it's amazing it's really cool unbelievable stuff digital archaeology i suppose you'd call that it, it literally is yeah that's a great word for it it's it's fantastic and this is like people's lives that are actually restoring so it's amazing, and it is a great read, and if you have spare cash, send it their way, because they're doing this all the time for various things, so it's really cool. And they have a Mastodon account, so follow them. It's a fascinating story, and the the steps that they go through to finally understand what's on this disc is very good. They talk about a box of tricks called Grease Weasel, and I feel like either we talked about it recently, or I've talked about it with somebody else recently, in relation to recovering the data off of the BBC Doomsday laser discs from back in the 80s sometime. Uh, the fascinating thing there, it's kind of like a cross between uh, a floppy disk and a tape. A laser disk, the data is encoded in analog, but yet is a digital, it's digital data. And so you use this grease weasel thing to get the raw like the flux, the changes in in magnetic flux, or in the case of a laser disc, the changes in waveform to try and deduce whether it's a one or a zero <laughs> or whatever the byte is. It's quite extraordinary. Really cool tricks. And there's a few people out there that are that are rescuing this kind of data. And I think it's really important. But this story that you link to is fascinating and has a happy ending. I love it. It is really cool. It's uh that's scary. Like you just have to wonder what we're gonna be like in 20 years time let alone 100 it's disturbing the amount of data that might get lost it reminds me of uh alex ball i think he's called a youtube fellow who does old synths and stuff no doubt graham has subscribed <laughs> and he had some old um genesis floppies and he put them into a synth and, and got some classic sounds out of them recently it makes you wonder how long this data is actually going to survive on these old floppies because it doesn't last forever does it and these old media generally i mean i've got loads of cds and dvds that don't work anymore mm. and so we need people like this to preserve this stuff or just let it be lost to history although in this case it would have been terrible if that had happened <laughs> yeah lives depend on it what's this other abort retry fail then a bit of a thing that i love listening or watching is historical sort of stories from various o os's and how they got where they were. So Abortary Trifail is a blog 
there is a paid contribution to it if you want to get the latest stuff, but they've got a massive archive of stuff already from years going back, and it's really cool. And I love these stories where even if it's Windows, like Windows 1, Windows 2, it's kind of cool to hear all these things and how they all got where they were. And uh, the latest one is Red Hat's history, and unfortunately it's paid for, so I don't have it yet. But uh, <laughs> I will eventually when it's free. But um, it's quite cool, and it's funny because it's a port retry file, which is exactly what the last project had as their uh, main caption. This is a Substack. I don't know how I feel about Substack. Ah, sometimes you just have to go with it. Yeah, I feel quite negatively about the platform, but there are some cool people on there, I suppose. I've read quite a few of the articles on this, and they're actually really good. They're really well written, really well researched, and it's it's actually really enjoyable to do. So don't tart with the same brush. I suppose it's like YouTube, isn't it? Like there's some really good stuff on there, but I also hate it as a platform. So maybe that's the way to look at it. I mean, fuck, we called a podcast named after a fucking iPod that doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. If you work in security or IT and your company has Okta, this message is for you. Have you noticed that for the past few years, the majority of data breaches and hacks you read about have something in common? It's employees. Hackers absolutely love exploiting vulnerable employee devices and credentials, but it doesn't have to be this way. Imagine a world where only secure devices can access your cloud apps. In this world, phished credentials are useless to hackers, and you can manage every OS, even Linux, from a single dashboard. Best of all, you can get employees to fix their own device security issues without creating more work for IT. The good news is, you don't have to imagine this world. You can just start using Collide. Collide is a device trust solution for companies with Okta, and it ensures that if a device isn't trusted and secure, it can't log into your cloud apps. So support the show and visit collide.com slash late night Linux to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. But first of all, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember that for various amounts on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of either just this show or all the shows in the Late Night Linux family. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Will, what is webhook.site? It's not so much a Linux discovery this time, but I was using Linux while I went to find this. I was working on a little CGI script for my server at home that I wanted to be able to call from anywhere via a REST command, pass in a JSON object, and process that data and return some results. I do this sort of thing probably once a week, I would say. like It's pretty common occurrence. Now, in this case, I was developing it with inside Home Assistant. And what I wanted to do, because the, the changes that this script would enact would be potentially harmful if I got it wrong, what I wanted to do was test it, obviously. But I didn't want to poke this script and then comment out all the dangerous bits. I just wanted to see what was going to come out of Home Assistant when I pressed run. I wanted to see the data that was being posted to this script. And with Python, you can run like python-m HTTP server or something like that, and you can stand up an HTTP server on a port of your choosing in about a couple of minutes, probably. But you had to go and work out what all the commands were and then memorize them and so on. And I didn't want to do that. I just wanted something that I didn't have to care about. 
So along come webhook.site, where you go to webhook.site and it gives you a URL just like that. And then on the page, on the same page where it gives you the URL, it shows you the requests that have come in, what the headers were, what the query strings were, what the embedded data that was submitted was, just on the screen. No messing about, no registering. You get a unique URL every time. You get an email address as well, and you can just post whatever the hell you like to this thing, and it just pops up on the screen. And it was exactly what I was looking for. It was absolutely zero effort to get it working, and I've used it a handful of times now, and it's been brilliant. So full marks to that website. And if you're ever in the process of just needing to see what's being posted to a form, you can just go there, get a URL, post to it, and see it immediately. Python 3-m HTTP.server. I do that probably once a week. Mm. I still think this is brilliant, especially with Home Assistant. Some things require an HTTPS connection, mm. and that's a pain at home, and this is HTTPS, yeah. so that's really cool. That might mm. be why I had to use it then. Right. Mm. In Garmin smartwatches, you can create REST API calls from the watch, but you can only send it to an HTTPS destination. Mm. And this is this is be perfect for that, to see what is inside, what it sends, ultimately, to be able to mm. try and do something with it. I just picture you trying to type the JSON into your phone with four <laughs> buttons, <laughs> two on either side of the watch. Fuck me, that must be frustrating. This is very sad. I want to turn the bedroom lights off without having a phone in the bedroom. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Or turn it on to romantic horror. <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine Barry White getting played through a Casio synth on your fucking wrist. Quick shout out for Regolith 3.0 that's come out recently. This is tiling window management on easy mode, as easy as that is possible to get. And you just add a repo on Ubuntu or Debian and then install it and then log out, log into the session. And I highly recommend it for someone who wants to get into a tiling window manager. I tried it out yesterday and then remembered why I don't like tiling window managers because I can never remember all the fucking keyboard shortcuts for it. But I've always had a soft spot for it. When I've tried to get into it, it's far, far less intimidating than the likes of just straight i3. And this latest version of it even supports a Wayland session, although that's alpha at the moment, although that seemed to work pretty well for me. So I've always liked Regolith, and I thought, yeah, check it out. Link in the show notes. Let's do some feedback then. Christopher says, I found your Slackware experiences interesting to hear. My own experience was not too dissimilar to yours, and yet I'm a Slackware user. Well, sort of. I'd like to suggest you all give Slackware another go, but this time trying Salix OS. As the tagline goes, it's Linux for the lazy slacker. The installer is easier, the default desktop is the emperor of all desktops, XFCE, <laughs> and initial configuration is all working out of the box. It's up to date with Slack 15.12. Maybe this could be a good install and try distro for another episode. It would at least be interesting to hear a comparison by the expert panel. That's you lot, by the way. Also, tell that other bloke, KDE sucks, XFCE for the win. Hey, Phelan, KDE sucks. Mm. XFCE for the win. The scratch writings of a lunatic. No, Christopher's on point there. No, he's not. So I actually did try this out. As did and I. you did as well, Phelan. Yes. Mm. And it, it just, yeah, it's Slackware, but a little bit easier. I mean, it's still Slackware, so it's not easy. <laughs> not for me, it wasn't. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, it was a car crash. 
I don't know what went wrong, but uh, yeah, I really had not a good time with this. I had better luck with actual Slackware. Wow. Really? I installed this Invert Manager last night and just all went very smoothly. Nope. I found weird choices. So, okay, by mistake, I didn't do the live one first. I did the other one. And that was like a manual install again. And it seemed to give me F disk, I think it was. Yeah, no, I had to do that. Yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah, but... Then when I went to the installer, picked USB stick by mistake rather than CD, DVD, yeah, yeah. and it blanked all my choices in the installer. I was like, oh, oh, okay, great. And then it dropped me out into CG disk, which was yet another disk partition thing <laughs> to ask me whether my partition layout was right. I was like, uh, yeah, but this is not the same tool I used, so I don't know why that changed. <laughs> and then, uh, okay, so I picked the right CD-ROM that time, and geez, I nearly had an epileptic fit from the blinking of the mm. installer. It was like really irritating because I had it in a VM, obviously, and it was sitting off out of the way. But the network came up, asked me to configure it. DHCP failed on my network. I know DHCP what? works on my network. Yeah. I did a restart, didn't boot. And I thought, what the hell has gone wrong here? So I redid it all again. And then I said, right, last time I picked MBR and maybe it was the wrong disk type. So I tell you what, install the bootloader into the root disk. Did a restart, didn't boot again after that. It was gone. So I said, right. I, I said, I can't believe I've been beaten twice. It took three installs for normal Slackware to work. So I said, right, I'll do the live installer this time. Redownloaded that, got that going. And then it said, I said, right, do the install. And it said, please enter the password for one. I was like, one what? As in <laughs> me, one? Uh, as in, you know, you know, one for you? And I was like, I don't know what this is talking about. I went looking for it. I couldn't find reference to password anywhere on the page. And I just, I kept going round, round circles, just going, what the fuck is this thing talking about? So, and then I eventually went, does it mean like one as in the user one? And then I, so I opened a bash terminal I said, who am I? One. I was like, oh, fuck off. Right. Mm. So, well, what, what's my password? I, did, I never set one. So I said, right, I'll try one as in O-N-E. And yeah, that worked. Mm. And I tried to do the installer. It gave me a graphical choice to pick all that stuff. And yeah, I couldn't get it to work. I don't know what was going on. So I just gave up. That's weird, man. I think it's because you did MBR rather than GPT because I did GPT and it just worked perfectly. But I did GPT disk. That's what I couldn't understand. So I, I I understood the first time I did GPD disk and I said, install it to the master boot record. And I said, you know what? That's probably wrong. I can't remember. I'll do it again. And I installed it to root. Didn't work. Neither way worked. GPD disk either time. Really, really, really bizarre. Well, I just created the uh, disk and it was, you know, it's, it's a bit long having to do that via the command line and stuff, but created that and then just told it ext4 and it just installed it. It was a bit weird, like flashing, as it like oh, installed man, every yeah, package. Totally. But then once it was done, I just had a pretty nice XFCE desktop. And uh, the the GUI software installer and updater looked suspiciously like Synaptic. But I'm pretty sure it's a fork of it because it was just was the fucking same. And that is my favorite GUI software installer, updater, whatever, software manager. So I had a great time with it. I got VLC running, watching some YouTube videos. It was all just hunky-dory. It was very much for me exactly what Christopher said, just a slightly easier way to install and configure Slackware. And I would install XFCE anyway. No. So I was just perfectly <laughs> happy with it. The theme looked good. I mean, from the live thing, I could see what it looked like. And yeah, I mean, it looked nice if that's your type of thing. 
you're just not as good at Linux as me. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, must be. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when who knows what will be happening. Probably some news. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phantom. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. Bye.